evening we are in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, we'll see how far we get. I had thought we might try and do 1st and 2nd Peter tonight, but uh, as I prepared, I kind of came to the conclusion we might just do 1st Peter and then next week look at 2nd Peter and Jude uh, together because they have a lot in common. So uh, we'll see what we get accomplished here. 1st Peter is one uh, of the books that we talked about last week that is uh, considered a general or Catholic epistle in that uh, it wasn't written to a specific church or a specific individual, uh, but to believers in general throughout uh, a wide region. Uh, and so we can see that here in, in chapter 1, verse 1, uh, where Peter says that his letter is to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bith Bithynia. So uh, that's a very wide, broad region of Asia Minor there in the Roman Empire. So uh, this is a general epistle that's being sent out to uh, a lot of believers throughout that region. Uh, Peter identifies himself as the author here uh, at the very beginning, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we all know who Peter is. The early church would have known as well. He's one of the 12. Uh, he identifies himself as an apostle. Uh, he has the authority to uh, speak to the church in general as an apostle and to instruct them in Christian living. Uh, at the end of the letter, uh, we see in chapter 5, verse 12, that uh, Peter used a secretary, Silvanus, uh, who is probably the same uh, person as Silas. And so this was his secretary uh, who he dictated the letter and they wrote it. And so uh, we can see, even in the writing of this letter, Peter being a Galilean fisherman, uh, the letter uh, bears the marks of someone who's a pretty good uh, author in the Greek language, and so uh, now we know why, because Silas was the one who actually wrote it. We go to date the letter, uh, and it would be dated to the early 60s AD, probably between 60 and 62 AD. Uh, Peter tells us in chapter 5, verse 13, that he's writing from Babylon, uh, which would be Rome. Uh, so he is in Rome, he's writing from there uh, to these churches spread throughout Asia Minor. Uh, we know from history that he was executed in Rome sometime around 65 AD, could have been late 64, or early 66, but somewhere in that period. So both of his letters would have been written before then, this being the first letter. Uh, it's, most scholars would say it was written sometime before 62 AD. So why did Peter write this letter? Uh, he's in Rome. He's writing this general letter, sending it out to all of these churches in Asia Minor. What is the occasion that brought it on? Well, obviously, it's not a single congregation that's having an issue that needs to be addressed, as we saw in many of Paul's letters. But instead, uh, Peter is looking at the general increase uh, in suffering and persecution that Christians are facing there in the Roman Empire. And so he is writing because of that increase of trials and persecutions. And his purpose is to encourage these saints uh, in their faith to bear these trials uh, and, and to persevere to the end. And so as he does this, there are a number of themes uh, that come to 
the forefront as he writes. Obviously, suffering is one of them, uh, trials and suffering. Uh, but we also see the identity of Christians, the identity of the church being uh, a big part of his theme as he seeks to encourage them to endure trials. He does so by reminding them of who they are as Christians. And so uh, we see in chapter 1, verse 3, that he calls, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So uh, here he's speaking of what we know as being born again. Uh, Down in verse 23, uh, he also says, uh, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Uh, He says in chapter 2, verse 2, Uh, as newborn babes. And so he's driving home the point that Christians have been born again spiritually, not a physical rebirth, but a spiritual rebirth. Uh, We are new creatures, a new creation in Christ Jesus. Now, what does that entail? Well, there's a number of things, and and he highlights what our identity is, but a couple of them that seem to be themes throughout the letter— are the priesthood of all believers. We see this a couple of times, but specifically in chapter 2, verse 5, where he says, you also as living stones are being built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, uh, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so uh, Peter makes this point that Christians, the entire Christian church, uh, is a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests, just as Israel had been intended to be uh, in the Old Testament. But primarily, one of the primary identities he gives us is that of pilgrims. Uh, He says in chapter 1, verse 1, to the pilgrims of the dispersion, or uh, some translations might say sojourners. Uh, So we're, we're not permanent residents of this world. We're pilgrims. He says in chapter 2, uh, verse 11, uh, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So uh, again, he's calling us pilgrims. In chapter uh, 4, verse 2, uh, he, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. So he makes the point that the time we have in the flesh is limited because we are pilgrims, we're sojourners. And then in chapter 5, uh, verse 10, uh, he says, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So again, making the point that our sojourn, our pilgrimage here on earth is temporary. It is for a while, but we have been called uh, to eternal glory. So uh, that is one of the major uh, themes of Peter's letter, the, the temporariness of their suffering and the trials and persecutions that they're facing will come to an end, but there is an eternal reward, an eternal state awaiting the church. But there are other identities that Peter will pick up on and we'll uh, see those as we work through. And I kind of highlighted them in the way I outlined it. Uh, Chapters 1, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1 are the opening of the letter. But then in verse 3 through uh, 25, through the end of chapter 1, Peter identifies believers as holy heirs of salvation. That's the identity that he's driving home in chapter 1. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, uh, he identifies believers as the temple of God. 
And then in chapter 2, verses 11 through 25, he identifies believers as pilgrims in a hostile world. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, he identifies believers as a united congregation, a united community uh, of believers. And then in chapter 3, verses 13 through chapter 4, verse 19, the believers are a suffering community. Uh, And then in chapter 5, believers are a humble community. So these are the identities that he uh, drives home to us. So let's work our way through. And there's actually some important things here in the first two verses uh, in the opening of the letter. Uh, Paul, Peter, identifies himself here as an apostle of Jesus Christ, which gives him, as I said, the authority to write a letter addressed to the churches in general. Now we see at the end of the letter in chapter 5, when he specifically addresses leadership in the church, the elders in the churches, he he addresses, he says in chapter 5 verse 1, the elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder. And so he identifies himself Uh, He has common ground with the leaders in all these various churches. He's a fellow elder with them. He serves the church there in Rome. And, he says, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And so, once again, he highlights the fact that he is an apostle. Because if we think back uh, to the book of Acts, one of the uh, requirements for someone to be an apostle is that they had witnessed Uh, the ministry of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, his death and his resurrection. So when they replaced Judas with Matthias, that was one of the primary requirements. It had to be a brother who had been with them and could testify to these things as an eyewitness. So Peter makes that point that he is uh, an apostle with the authority uh, to address the church. But then he addresses the church as pilgrims of the dispersion uh, there in verse 1. And so uh, He's kind of making the point that the church is um, the Gentiles here that he's writing to are part of the end times uh, people of God. Uh, If we go back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, and this is one that Peter will actually uh, allude to or reference a couple of times in the letter, but we read this. Chapter 11, verse 12 of Isaiah, He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And so here he is calling uh, the church the pilgrims of the dispersion. Uh, And so he's kind of alluding to or referencing this idea that God had promised in the past through the prophets that in the end times he would gather together his people uh, from out of the nations. And so that is what has happened here in the church. And so they're in a sort of a spiritual exile. And we know that he is writing specifically to Gentiles because in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So he had called them out of spiritual darkness into the light of the knowledge of Christ, who once were not a people but are now the people of God. So he obviously is writing to Gentiles who once were not the people of God and now are the people of God because of this calling with which they have been called. Uh, And so he has identified them uh, in verse 2 of chapter 1 as elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so uh, the church has been, is part of God's people that have been elected from eternity past. Uh, He says that they have been 
um, sprinkled, he says, by the blood of Jesus Christ. So they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, if we go back to uh, Exodus, uh, when the nation of Israel was first being formed, having been called out of Egypt, uh, the people are gathered together. And uh, in Exodus chapter 24, verse 8, we read this, And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Well, we know that the blood of the covenant, of the new covenant, is the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, And so Peter says that the church has been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the blood of the new covenant. And so they've been constituted a people in the same way that ethnic Israel had been constituted a people there uh, in the Exodus. And so again, uh, in Isaiah chapter 52, uh, we see the prophets speaking to this. Chapter 52, verse 15, Isaiah says, So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. And so uh, the prophets had even prophesied that in the end, that the suffering servant who is Christ would sprinkle many nations uh, to be part of this new covenant. And so Peter is making that point. Uh, In chapter 5, verse 2, he tells the elders to shepherd the flock of God, which is among them. Uh, Again, this is an Old Testament reference we see in Psalm 80 and in Jeremiah 31, where particularly where we're told about the new covenant, uh, that the people of God are referred to as God's flock. And so here the church is referred to as the flock of God. And so G.K. Beale says this, he says, the inescapable conclusion is that Peter considers his audience to be part of true end-time Israel. And so Peter's making this point about their identity. They are the people of God. Uh, In chapter 2, verse 12, he actually tells them um, that they are to have have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, uh, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So them having been sprinkled with the blood, us having been sprinkled with the blood of the covenant, the blood of Christ made pure by his blood, inaugurated as the people of God, we're no longer Gentiles. We're now part of the people of God. And so we are to live lives separate from the unbelievers uh, who are Gentiles. And so Peter's making a pretty stark and bold claim about his audience here. They are the covenant people of God. And so that's going to inform a lot of what he says about them. So beginning in verse 3, moving on through the end of the chapter, Peter is making the point that the believers are holy heirs of salvation. He tells us in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we have been born again through the resurrection of Christ, 
Uh, his resurrection inaugurates the new creation, the new life. Uh, and so we have been born into this new life by our belief, our faith in him and in his resurrection. So we are now part of a new family, having been born again. And so he tells us uh, in verse 17 that God is our father. He tells us in verse 4 that we have an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Uh, so we are heirs uh, of this inheritance, which is uh, our salvation, he says, uh, that will be revealed at the last time, which is when Christ returns. Uh, the prophets testified to this, he tells us in chapter 1, verse 10. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Uh, so the Old Testament prophets prophesied of the coming salvation of the nations uh, because of uh, the sacrifice of the Messiah. And so Peter concludes uh, in verse 14 that we are children. He says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. So we are now part of the family of God. We've been born anew. Uh, into his family as his children. We are therefore to be obedient to our heavenly father and should act like members of the family. And so he tells us in verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Uh, so Peter's hammering in this identity that we are heirs uh, of God, of God's salvation. And because we are part of God's family, we are to be holy because our heavenly father is holy. Uh, and then he tells us, he goes on here in the end part of the chapter um, to tell us that uh, what it is that has made us, uh, that has brought us this new life uh, is the word of God. He says in verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And so God created us as a new people by his word, just as he had created the world initially uh, by the power of his word. And Peter reminds us that that word that, that creates the people of God uh, lives and abides forever. And then he quotes from Isaiah, because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass, grass withers away and its flower falls but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so uh, because the word of God endures forever and it is the word of God which has constituted us as a people, then Peter's readers, uh, including us, can be confident that our salvation uh, will likewise endure forever because it is founded on the enduring word of God. The next identity that Peter drives home to us in the first part of chapter 2 is that believers are the temple of God. Uh, he says in chapter 2, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, uh, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And so, uh, since we have been born again, we need to grow up in this new life that we have been given. We need to mature. And so we are to do this through a steady diet of the word and by laying aside uh, our former lives. And that's, so that's what he means there in verse 1. And that's how we um, behave ourselves and grow thereby is by the milk of the word and by laying aside our former lives. And when he says in verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, uh, 
he's making an allusion there to Psalm chapter 34, which is one that we're uh, familiar with. Uh, if I turn back and read you part of Psalm 34, you'll recognize this and see where he's uh, getting this language from. Uh, but Psalm chapter 34, verse 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Uh, and so Paul, Peter is making this point that um, the natural action of new believers would be uh, to have this desire for the Lord, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so if that is indeed the case, then we should continue and to mature and grow as believers. He says in verse 4 that believers experience uh, the same rejection by the world that Christ experienced. Uh, and so he tells us in verse 7, Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so the world rejected Christ, uh, and so indeed uh, we will be rejected by the same world. In verse 4 he says, Coming to him, that is Christ, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so uh, we are built up. Uh, God used Christ as the cornerstone of this new um, temple that he is building, and he is using believers as living stones, he said there in verse 5, uh, to create this temple where the presence of God will dwell with man. And so he says that we are a holy priesthood, making acceptable sacrifices through Jesus Christ. And so that's packed with a lot of Old Testament language there that is identifying uh, the people of God, not only as a temple, but as the priesthood that serves in the temple, offering sacrifices. Uh, he tells us that um, Christians are elect. He has called us that several times in the letter. Uh, he says in verse 9 that you are a chosen generation, so chosen by God. But the unbelievers who reject Christ, he says uh, that Christ is, in verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Uh, and so it is by the will of God. Some are chosen and some are passed over, appointed uh, to be disobedient. And so Peter makes this point that the Christian believers who are reading his letter uh, are the temple of God, where God's presence dwells on earth uh, at this time among his people. Uh, and he tells us that we are uh, this chosen special people for a reason, that we, he says in verse 9, may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so that is why God has called us uh, and established us as a people, so that we could proclaim his praises among the nations. Uh, so then beginning in verse 11 uh, through the end of the chapter, uh, Peter makes this point that believers are pilgrims in a hostile world. Uh, in verse 11 he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And so he starts to make the point that uh, what we experience in this life is a spiritual battle. There's a war going on uh, and our fleshly lusts and desires are waging war against our souls. But we are not pilgrims. Uh, we're pilgrims. We're not citizens of this world. We are citizens of 
heaven, citizens of God's kingdom. And so our conduct uh, should reflect that. He says in verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So um, our conducts, our, our good works, abstaining from fleshly lusts uh, will be a witness and a testimony uh, to the nations of our status as God's people. Uh, he says in verse 13 that this does not mean uh, because we're pilgrims on this earth and citizens of this heavenly kingdom, it does not mean that we can therefore disregard all earthly authority. To the contrary, uh, we are free as God's people, but we are not free to be lawless. Uh, and so we are to submit ourselves, he says, to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Now remember that Peter is writing this, who just a couple of short years after he writes this will be executed. Uh, by the emperor there in Rome. And he is telling us that we are to submit ourselves uh, for the Lord's sake uh, as a testimony that we are his people. And he says in verse 15, this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And so uh, Peter says that we are to do good. Um, our conduct should reflect uh, who we are as God's people. And he says that uh, we may end up suffering as Christians because of this, because the world and its systems are hostile to Christ. Uh, we may end up suffering, but our sufferings are temporary. He had already alluded to that back in chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, they're temporary because they're of this world. They are uh, the world, Satan, uh, moving the world and the systems of the world to wage this war against believers, and so therefore they are temporary sufferings. Uh, so, but he says that we must be careful uh, to ensure that we are actually suffering as Christians and not simply suffering uh, because we have done evil, because we have sinned. So he says in verse 20, For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. So uh, if you go out and break the law and act foolishly and you get punished for it, you're not suffering uh, for the sake of Christ at that point. You're suffering for your own law-breaking and your own sinfulness. But if you suffer because you're a Christian, uh, because you proclaim the name of Christ uh, or refuse to um, bow the knee to the emperor in place of Christ, uh, then that is commendable before God. Um, and he says that for to, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Now, uh, this is a little bit tricky here because uh, Christ suffered uh, as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice. So in what way are we to follow his example? Well, he tells us in verse 22 uh, that Christ's suffering involved that he who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So Peter's point is, again, that when we suffer, it should be uh, because we're not, we're not suffering because of our own sinfulness, but rather we're suffering because of uh, holding to Christian ethics and to uh, following Christ. 
And so uh, we're not suffering as a substitutionary sacrifice for someone in that way. We're following Christ's example when we suffer, not for our sin, but for doing good. And when we do not return evil for evil, but when we suffer patiently, we don't threaten those who have suffered us, uh, but rather we commit ourselves to God, just as Christ committed himself to the Father. Um, so in verse 21, he then tells us that uh, Christ suffered and so will we. Uh, he said, uh, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us. We're to follow his example, follow in his steps. So we will suffer. Uh, Peter's not telling us that we won't. Uh, it, you can obey all the laws in the world, uh, but if you follow Christ and you hold to Christ, um, you will experience suffering of one kind or another. P P Paul said this in his letters, and we see it around the world today, uh, that those who follow Christ in places like North Korea or China suffer uh, for that. Uh, and, and in some ways, even here in America, we can suffer revilings and people speaking evil of us because we follow Christ. And so we're to follow his example uh, and to suffer well and to suffer for his sake and not uh, for our sin. Um, and so he suffered innocently. And so when he quoted there in verse 22, he was quoting from Isaiah 53, verse 9, uh, speaking of the suffering servant there in Isaiah. Uh, Peter then goes on to begin um, a section that looks very much like um, some of the household codes that we saw in Colossians 3 or Ephesians 5 and 6, uh, talking about wives submitting to their husbands and husbands' relationship to their wives, etc. Uh, and what he's really doing here, his point here, is uh, talking about the identity of the people of God and that we are to be marked by our unity. Uh, as, as the people of God. And so wives are to, to submit to their own husbands, uh, even if they are not believers, uh, even if some of them do not obey the word, uh, but they are to submit uh, as to the Lord. Submission is not just an outward conformity, but rather it is to reflect an inward change of heart. And so he says in verse 4, uh, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Husbands, uh, on the other hand, in verse 7, he says, Likewise, dwell with them, that is, with your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So he didn't use the exact language here, but he's saying much the same thing that Paul said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, care for them. They are co-heirs with you uh, of the inheritance that Peter has already spoken of. Uh, in verse 8, he then tells that all of us, all of you, be of one mind, having compassion for one another, Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. And so there he is addressing the whole church uh, and identifying one of the primary marks of the church by which we are known to be the people of God, that we love one another. Uh, and so then he quotes uh, an extended quote here from Psalm 34. Again, the one he referenced earlier, taste and see that the Lord is good. Here he is quoting from uh, verses 12 through 16. Uh, and it would be instructive for us to consider that psalm. Saul, David wrote that psalm 
when he was uh, in the Philistine city uh, before Abimelech, the king there, and he had to pretend uh, to be mad, uh, drooling, scribbling on the gates in order to protect his life. Uh, but David goes on in that psalm to praise God for delivering him uh, from those trials and from that situation. Uh, and so Peter is making the point that the church should be unified by our love uh, for one another and our love for God, uh, and that just as David did, we can depend on the Lord to deliver us from whatever trials we may suffer. And, and so that leads him into uh, this discussion of the church as a suffering community in ver chapter 3, verses 13 through the end of chapter 4. And so Peter asks here in verse 13, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? And the, you know, the answer is, uh, no one. No one will harm you because you're following God who is faithful. And so I think that he may even be thinking about the remainder of Psalm 34. He quoted there from uh, chapters 12 through 16, but listen to what comes after the portion that he quoted. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken, as an obvious reference to Christ. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. So the answer to Peter's question in verse 13, who will harm you if you follow what is good? The answer is no one ultimately can harm your soul. They may harm your body, but they cannot harm your soul. And so in verse 14, Peter says, Even if you do suffer, for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And he says, Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. And there he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12. And in Isaiah 8, um, Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, has partnered with the nation of Syria. Uh, against the southern kingdom of Judah. And so the southern kingdom of Judah uh, fails to trust in God at this moment, and so they go and they make a partnership with Assyria uh, in order to defend themselves. But God speaks to Isaiah and tells him that he and his household are not to follow Judah, but rather uh, they are to trust in God and to do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled, but rather they are to trust in God. And so... Uh, Peter's point is that Christians should not fear persecution, but should trust in the Lord just as Isaiah had done. The very next verse there in Isaiah 8, after the one that he quotes, is this, The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow, let him be your fear. In verse 15, Peter alludes to that by saying, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Hallow the Lord of hosts, and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And so again, referencing Isaiah there, um, the unbelievers who persecute the righteous and the, the Christians should be ashamed of that persecution uh, because they should be put to shame by the behavior of God's people. He tells us in verse 16 that we are to have a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. 
Uh, and then in verse 17, again, he tells us it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And so Peter has uh, said this multiple times now. If you suffer, make sure that you are suffering for the right reasons uh, and not because of your own sin. Verses 18 through 22, we have a rather uh, difficult passage to deal with here. Um, and I would refer you to Paul's teaching when he taught through First uh, Peter and dealt with this at greater length than I can. But the main point of this paragraph here in verses 18 through 22 appears to be that Christ suffered not for his sin, but as a just one, a righteous man who was just, uh, and he is now in heaven with all authority. That's the result of his suffering, down in verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. And the result is our salvation. Uh, in verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, uh, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the, by the Spirit. So uh, his point is that Christ suffered uh, as a righteous person, not as an unrighteous person. Uh, and if he had suffered for his own sins, then our salvation would not be true and Christ would not be seated in heaven with all authority given to him. And so if we're going to follow his example and suffer uh, the way he suffered, then we should suffer uh, as those who have done no wrong. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, he doesn't mean that uh, we no longer sin, uh, that we become perfectly sanctified, but rather, uh, he says in verse 2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Uh, and so his point is uh, that following Christ, we should make every effort not to suffer because of sin, and that those who do suffer for the sake of Christ prove that they are willing to obey him, even if it means suffering, rather than giving themselves to sin, going along with the world in order to avoid suffering. Uh, but the world won't um, understand why we would refuse to join them in their sin, why we would cling to Christ and endure suffering instead. Uh, they're not going to understand this. He says in verse 4, In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. And so uh, those who we might have known in our former lives before we became believers or those that we encounter uh, in the world who engage in all of these things that he details in verse 3 uh, and we do not participate with them, they'll find it strange and they won't understand why we would do this. But uh, they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, he says in verse 5. Uh, so in the end, the righteous will be vindicated and the wicked will be judged. Uh, in verse 6, he says, For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. He's speaking about us, about his readers. The gospel has been preached to those who are dead. Uh, he had said earlier uh, in the letter that the gospel was preached to us. Um, and, and so he's talking about his readers. They were dead in their sins. They've been made alive in the spirit. They're now judged by men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Uh, and so that is uh, part and parcel of being a believer in the gospel. 
In verse 7, he tells us that the end is at hand, and so uh, we should therefore love uh, one another. He says in verse 8, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And in verse 10, he tells us to use our gifts. Uh, all of these things are to be done, he says in verse 11, for the glory of God. Uh, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, So all of this is aiming at the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, He tells us in verse 12 that we should not be surprised by trials, but rather uh, we should rejoice when we suffer uh, for the name of Christ. He says in verse 13, Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So it's very similar to what James told us in his letter to rejoice in our trials and our sufferings because of the intended fruit of those things by God. Um, He tells us in verse 14 that uh, the suffering church is so identified with Christ um, that Isaiah chapter 11, which he has already quoted and alluded to uh, more than once, uh, applies to the church. Because in Isaiah chapter 11, at the very beginning, and this is a passage that's familiar to us, Isaiah says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. It's obviously a prophecy about Christ. Then he says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Well, Peter tells us here in verse 14, Uh, He says, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's very similar language to what Isaiah used there, and Peter's already referenced that chapter in Isaiah, so that's where he is probably getting that language. Uh, And again, talking about our identity in Christ, we're so closely associated with him uh, that we have the same spirit he does dwelling in us as his temple. And so uh, we are to suffer well for his name's sake. And again, he reminds us in verses 15 and 16 that we are not to suffer for our own sin. This is the third or fourth time he's reminded us of this, uh, but that we are to see that we suffer for the sake of Christ. Uh, In chapter 5, he then moves on to uh, address the the elders in the church. uh, And and what he tells the elders, again, he, he... finds common ground with them, tells them he is a fellow elder, but then he uh, again reminds us of his apostolic authority as a witness to Christ. And then he says that he's also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Well, in chapter 4, verse 13, uh, he had said that we would rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So Peter is saying that, that he's experiencing that same suffering and that hoping for to be a partaker of that same glory when it is revealed. So he's identifying uh, with all believers in this case. But he tells the elders in the church that they are to shepherd or pastor 
the flock of God that is among them. And we already spoke about uh, that reference to the flock of God being a reference uh, taken from the Old Testament. But uh, the word that's translated shepherd here, the Greek word uh, poimeno, is the word from which we get our English word pastor. They are to pastor the flock of God. Uh, And he says that we are to do so with humility uh, because we are not, um, we're under shepherds. We're servants of the chief shepherd. He says in verse 3, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Um, In the Greek, it's actually arch poimino. So it's actually the arch shepherd, the chief shepherd. And so he tells the elders that they are to shepherd but they are to do so with humility, not lording it over the flock. Well, then in verse 5, he says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Uh, Now, some commentators think he's not necessarily referring to the youth in the church so much as he is to new believers. Uh, The Greek word there uh, is actually the word from which we get our word new. Uh, and so uh, he, if he's speaking to new believers, he's telling them they are to submit themselves to the elders. And then he says the whole congregation, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Uh, so we are to humble ourselves as God's people. We are to be marked by humility. He tells us in verse 9 that Satan uh, is behind the suffering that they are experiencing. In fact, he's behind the suffering that all Christians in the world experience. And so he says, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So uh, we can be encouraged when we're suffering as Christians that uh, we're not the only ones. Other Christians down through the ages and around the world have suffered the same things, uh, and it is because our adversary, the devil, is stirring these uh, trials up against us. Verses 10 through 13 are really the capstone of the entire letter. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, After you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, And so he then closes the letter um, and he says uh, that, you know, he gives us this note that it's been written by Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him. I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Well, what, what is this that he's referring to? Um, it's, I think it's our identity that he's been telling us about throughout the entire letter, our identity as the people of God, as heirs, uh, as the temple where the presence of God dwells, as priests who work in that temple, as pilgrims and exiles in this world, as the household of God. That identity has been given to us by the grace of God, and it is in that identity that we are to stand. In verse 13, he says, She who is in Babylon, uh, being a reference to the church there in Rome, elect together with you, greet you. So even these believers that are spread throughout Asia Minor, uh, the church there in Rome uh, greets them as they experience some of the same things they are experiencing. And then he closes the letter. Uh, the, the entire thrust of this letter is that believers must trust themselves to their faithful creator, their fa- heavenly father, and stand in his grace. Uh, and so he, he, he makes the point that Christians will suffer trials and tribulations and persecutions. And how are we to respond to these things? 
We are to pursue personal holiness. We are to pursue love for one another and humility as the people of God. And we are to cling to the word of God and the grace of God, that which gave us new life, uh, birthed us again uh, to be a people set apart, uh, holy unto the Lord. And so that is the message of 1 Peter. And let's close in a word of prayer.